Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy, and host of The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, episode number 60. To catch a thief, you need to think like one. Yeah, not really. When we come back. All right, so we're back to today's episode of The Brett Johnson Show, number 60. To catch a thief, you need to think like a thief. Yeah, not so much. I got to tell you, at one point in time, I used to spout off that bullshit myself. I'd get there and people would be talking to me and I was I was just becoming this, you know, on my legal side of things, this this public speaker, keynote speaker, whatever you want to call me. I would bitch a lot about stuff. And the audience members, you know, you'd have the cybersecurity people or you'd have the fraud people. And somebody was, well, you got to think like a thief in order to catch one. And, you know, it's a nice line. It truly is. But I'm the guy. I don't like to think of myself as dogmatic. I like to think of myself as the guy who continues to process incoming data and information and makes an educated, informed decision or opinion based on all of that incoming information and data. And as such, I have come to the conclusion, the educated conclusion, that no, you do not have to think like a thief in order to catch a thief. So that's the meat of today's episode. We will get there in just a few minutes. Before that, we've got to do viewer mail or comments. And before that, I need to say, hey, why don't you take the time to press the like button, or even better, the subscribe button. You see, I am no longer in corporate America. I was in corporate America for a year, and I was paid handsomely for my involvement in corporate America, but I am no longer there, and I have to tell you that I am actually much happier, much, much happier not being involved in all of that corporate bullshit. So what I'm doing is, is I'm concentrating on my speaking which I'm, I do very well with. I'm concentrating on my speaking. We're working on the book. I'm launching a new podcast called Prison Politics, which I'm hoping that will be the podcast or the YouTube channel that makes money because the Brett Johnson Show does not make any money. It just allows me a venue, an avenue for me to bitch, moan, and complain about things and to try to be a better person, which I think I'm getting there, guys. I really do. I think I, I, I really think I continue to improve on a, a daily basis. Sometimes I don't. My wife will tell you sometimes, oh, he's a fucking idiot sometimes. But overall, I continue to move forward. So this show kind of documents that as well as talks about security and, and things, stuff like that. Prison politics will be hopefully the show that makes money. But I, I'm asking if you don't mind to please subscribe to this show. Um, Please subscribe to all of my shows when they release. I, I'm doing this one. I'm doing Prison Politics, which launches June 5th. I'm also doing a short video channel uh, called Cybercrime 101, which has, you know, sub 10 minute videos that talks about one specific part of cybersecurity, cybercrime, identity theft, fraud, or just comments on the, the, the criminal issues of the day. So I would ask that you please subscribe. All right. And the reason for that is hopefully we get to the point where I've got enough subscribers that it's it's paying me some income it's completely selfish on my part but hey 
it's okay. It's not completely selfish because if I start generating income from these channels, guess what? I don't have to watch my mouth. Not that I watch it anyway, at least according to people like Chargebacks 911, Synchrony Bank, Blue Acorn, Wompley, Money Lion, etc., etc., etc. So please hit the subscribe button. Okay. That said, and I will remind you, I know I don't, usually don't plug my show like that, but I need to start doing that. I'll remind you at the end of the show as well. But look, um, we usually do viewer mail right now. Not going to really do a lot of viewer mail uh, today. And the reason why is, you know, I'd rather talk about something that I said on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And what I said was I was, I was talking about some of my prison experience. And it's got a couple of your comments I'm going to address, but uh, the the story that I gave of my prison experience, I was at a county jail in Lexington, South Carolina. And this is the same county jail. Um, actually, I was in two county jails in, in Columbia, South Carolina. I was in Lexington County Jail, and then I was in the Columbia, South Carolina jail as well. And uh, this this one jail system that I was in, what happened was, when, when you're in a jail system like that, so so federal, what typically happens is you have a federal holding unit in, in many jail systems, okay? So you're not mixed in with state inmates or county inmates and things like that. You're held all together as a federal unit. Now, what, what, what really happens is, is when you're arrested, a lot of the time, you're not yet charged federally. Okay, you're just you're just being held under state charges and then the feds will pick it up. So you can be charged. So say you're a bank robber, for example, you can be charged at the state level for bank robbery and you can also be charged at the federal level for bank robbery. So you have to go through the federal system and the state system face charges and you can get sentenced under each one. So you have to serve, you know, maybe five, eight years under state prison time and then they'll boot your ass over to federal where you'll serve your federal time at that point. Usually that's not what happens. Usually what happens is the state will initially charge you and then the feds will come in, pick up the case as well. Then the state will dismiss. So you have to serve just, you know, you just go through the whole federal system at that point. That's what happened with me. I was initially charged under state charges. Those were dismissed over time. And then the feds, discharged me under them and I served all my time under the federal prison guidelines. Now, what I'm getting at is that sometimes you have federal inmates that are pending their their trials or their plea agreements more likely than not. They're 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 pending that and before that's happening, a lot of the time, not a lot of time, but sometimes you get mixed in with the other state or local inmates. Now, the problem with that is that state is not that bad. If you got a guy that's, I don't care if the guy's looking at hard time in the state system or the federal system, it's a different type of mindset. Then you get some son of a bitch coming in there that uh, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him yet, or he's in there for DUI or uh, disturbing the peace or, or whatever. And because of that, you get this, this concept of the difference between a convict and an inmate. A convict knows how to do their prison time. An inmate is typically the, the, the people who cause trouble. They run their mouths, they gamble, they, um, 
get things from see you have these things called prison stores uh, an inmate will set up will go to the commissary and he'll buy a shitload of stuff in order to sell it to, to other inmates at a markup okay so he's running his own store and somebody will go get a bunch of stuff and, and won't pay him back or something like that the re what i'm getting at is i was at a county jail in lexington south carolina we were mixed in all together so you had local state federal in uh, holding you know inmates being held and when you have an environment like that, that environment is not a very peaceful environment. Okay, so you've got people that are screaming all the time. You've got fights that break out. You've got problems across the board. So it's, it's a loud environment. It's a violent environment. Now, I'm not talking about violence all the time, but it happens. And, and the story that I'm getting at, what I said was, is I was like, hey, I was out of county jail one time and I saw this this guy, he gets this coffee mug. So where you get coffee, you get coffee off of the commissary, you know, instant coffee. You've got a cup, not a glass cup, mind you, but a plastic cup that you drink out of. And that's that's how you fix your coffee. And then you've got a, a typically you've got a, not typically, but sometimes you have a microwave in that unit that you can use to heat up coffee, fix popcorn, anything else. Okay. So this kid, I, I May as well call him a kid. He was early, early 20s. This kid gets his coffee mug, puts a shitload of Vaseline in it, takes it the microwave, sticks it in the microwave, you know, hits it for seven minutes. Once he hit, heats up that, uh, that Vaseline, and, uh, you know, I guess some people knew it was Vaseline, and uh, some didn't. But, um, once he heats up that Vaseline, he, he takes the cup of, cu cup of Vaseline out of the microwave, goes over to a guy that he had been arguing with, throws it in his face. And uh, at that point, the, so, so you, you, the Vaseline sticks to the skin, okay? And it's really hot. So the skin starts to melt away. And, of course, you've got the screams and everything else. And, of course, not only that, but that Vaseline doesn't just hit that guy's face. That guy's sitting at one of these metal picnic tables. So when he throws it, it splatters, and so it's got another inmate. So everybody's like, holy shit, and trying to get out of the way and everything like that. Some people knew it was going to go on, so they had already cleared out. Um, so I told that story about... Uh, you know, that's that's what got the microwaves taken out of that unit. So this, this kid is, is beefing with somebody. And in order to get back at him, he disfigures the guy. I don't know whatever happened to the guy. We never saw that, that guy or the uh, victim again after that. They did take out the microwaves. And anybody that had popcorn was just kind of screwed at that point. Um, that is not... It's not common, but it's not uncommon. And I told that story as a as a lead-in to some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about on prison politics. So we're, I'm going to be bringing in former felons. I'm going to give them, say, 10 minutes to talk about you know their story, what they did, what the disposition of the case was. Then we're going to move over into what happened, to, what's your prison experience like? What was, what was the politics of prison like for you? And then finally, how did your prison experience influence or not influence 
your opinion of societal and political issues now that you're a free person. I think it's going to be a good conversation. I truly do. All right. I think that, uh, you know, we're going to ask things. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to ask about what they think could be done to, uh, from, from that prison standpoint to help make sure that they don't recidivate. Because I've said this before that we, uh, people who leave prison, the majority of them, people who leave prison are not really intent on breaking the law anymore. They really think that they're going to be able to get out, get a job, lead a healthy legal life, and, and be productive. And typically that's not what happens. Typically what happens is, is you leave prison with the exact same tools with which you enter in with, and because you can't get a job, because you don't have a support group, because you don't have people that are taking those chances on you, you tend to fall back into using those tools which got you sent to prison to begin with. And guess what? It becomes this circular cycle where you go in and out all the time until finally you maybe get 20 years in prison and nobody worries about your ass again. So that's that's the show. I I do think that um, I think it'll be a good show. Hopefully it will be a popular show where people uh, want to watch it and engage. So we'll see. I, I, I'm going to put a lot of time. I am putting a lot of time in making sure that prison politics is a is a successful show. The reason I mentioned this is not only to play as a lead in to what kind of what we're doing going to be doing with prison politics, but I had a couple of people that asked a couple of questions about it. Um, Gloria. Let me make sure I've got her name down here. Pull up what she said. Gloria Dana. She is uh, for her profile. Profile says she is the product development engineer for Ford Motor Company. She handles, uh, she's written a book, SAE, Cybersecurity for Commercial Vehicles, which believe you me, you probably need some cybersecurity for commercial vehicles, because it seems to me there's not a whole lot of security over there, so she does an outstanding job. But she asked me a question. She was like, hey, where did they get the Vaseline? Well, Gloria, what happens is is you're in, you're in a county jail or in prison. You have commissary day. Sometimes you have commissary a couple of three times a week. Federal prison, it's um, what I remember. It's Thank God I don't remember everything. But from what I remember in federal, federal prison, my commissary day was Tuesdays, okay? You can go in, you can spend up to, I think it was $315 a month is what they finally allowed people as I was leaving the prison system. That's what they had bumped it up to. It was either $315 or $350 a month total. And on commissary, you can buy honey buns, you can buy ice cream, you can buy uh, sodas. You know, if you wanted a Diet Coke or regular Coke or something like that, you can buy that. Uh, you can buy your hygiene stuff. So toothbrush, toothpaste, uh, soap, shampoo, Vaseline, lotion, things like that. Vaseline is, is a very popular thing. Why is Vaseline a popular thing? Well, Vaseline is a popular thing because it moisturizes the skin and... Just to be honest, in prison talk, it is a form of lube. No, not everyone has sex in prison. But there are some that do. And because of that, you need some sort of lubrication. So Vaseline is sold. Uh, Vaseline is sold at, uh, typically it's sold, whether you're in the county system or in a state or federal system. You get some sort of lotion or something like that. And, and a lot of people like to use Vaseline because it's just a better type of uh, moisturizer and a better type of lubricant as well. Um, so that's where it came from. 
I had another individual that asked, let me get his name up here because I want to give people credit for asking these questions. I Gloria, that was a great question. I, I, I realized that when you ask that question that, that a lot of people out there really don't understand how it is, you know, once you get locked up, that you have access to these things. Um, you know, what you typically don't have access to is the ability to fight your case. Uh, you're, most people who are in that system are, giving pub, are given public defenders. Those public defenders, they don't have the time nor the abilities, you know, the, 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 the tools that they need in order to properly defend the people who are charged with crimes. And as such, a lot of public defenders come in with plea bargains. I can't tell you the number of people in, in South Carolina, again, that uh, you'd get an African-American individual, and it, it was typically African-American. That's, that was the majority of people that were locked up as well. You'd get an African-American individual who was uh, arrested for trafficking drugs. Now, that sounds serious until you understand that when they say trafficking drugs, a lot of the people who are charged with that are drug addicts who end up selling some of their some of the drugs in order to support their own habits. So trafficking drugs, that's a very that's a very interesting use of that term trafficking. It it doesn't really jive with what a lot of people think of, you know, major traffickers in drugs, you know, like uh, some of the cartel people and what have you. But what would happen is somebody would be arrested for trafficking drugs and they had search the home, the car, whatever, and there would be a weapon. Okay. So it was interesting that typically the the trafficking charge, a lot of the times that would even that would be thrown out and dropped. They wouldn't even be worried about the trafficking thing. They'd concentrate on the weapon thing. And a lot of these public defenders would come with plea agreements before that individual was even arraigned. So you you figure that, you know, the United States is based on a speedy trial. That is nice on paper, but that's not typically the way a lot of these things work. You get a crowded jail system, you may not be arraigned for a couple of three weeks, and that's exactly what was going on here. So the, the, the defenders would come with plea agreements because you've been found with a weapon, you know, plea agreement, 12 years. 12 years for possession of a firearm, which is insane. And these, these, these defendants, the people who were facing these charges, let's be fair, they were not educated. They were pretty much dumbasses. So a lot of them would sign off on that before they were even, be, even arraigned at, in court. So that was a lot of the issue. And, and the one case that I saw that still, uh, still sticks with me is this kid. He was looking at 12 years. That was his plea agreement. Sign off on 12. If you don't sign off on 12, they're going to give you 20. The kid's like, you know, fuck no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So he goes to his arraignment, and they throw the whole damn thing out. And it, just because he was a little bit smarter, he, he understood, hey, I don't have to do this. You know, just because they're telling you to sign it doesn't mean you got to do this kind of stuff. But but typically in a jail system or in the justice system, you see that that goes on pretty regularly. Um, yeah, the, the Vaseline came from the commissary. You've, you've got that that goes on. Um, What's kind of interesting, which might might help educate you a little bit more too, the 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 food that's that's served to inmates in a jail system is much different than the food that's served to inmates in a prison system. In a jail system, you're looking at you know two thousand calories a day, sometimes fifteen hundred calories a day. A lot of that is uh, 
So in the morning, you, you'll get a couple of boiled eggs. You'll get a slice of toast, um, maybe a fruit cup, something like that. Of an afternoon, you're going to get um, some sort of meat product or a sandwich, uh, a couple of cookies, maybe some chips on the side, something like that, or maybe some, maybe some french fries. Of an, of, an, of an evening, you get the same thing. Um, now, when I say meat, it's not really any type of meat that you would really recognize. Depending on the gel that you're at, it's something called Nutri-Loaf, which is almost un- inedible. Or it's, it's uh, you get a bologna sandwich, which uh, no one has ever seen bologna like that before. Okay, so this this is the type of stuff that you get. It's 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 stuff that uh, really is um, inedible most of the time. So you rely on commissary a lot. The poorer inmates that can't afford commissary, they'll typically trade their tray for something: candy bar, honey bun, what have you. A shot of coffee, so a cup of coffee, something like that is what is is what happens. And once you get into a prison system. The quality of the food improves greatly at that point in time. It's more edible. But until that point, you're kind of screwed over on stuff. So you, you rely on commissary. Um, you know, you in a, in a jail-type system, before you go to prison, you don't, um, you're not really, you can't do your laundry. So you change out your prison garbs, you know, once or twice a week. Um you're given a towel, you're given a sheet, a blanket, uh, a mat to sleep on. A lot of jails keep the uh, the environment as cold as they possibly can. The coldest jail I was ever in was Lexington, Kentucky, the Fayette County Jail there. And it was so cold that you would ra- you'd put your clothes on, you'd wrap up in a blanket, and you'd, you'd lay there in your bunk, and you'd shiver because they didn't want people to get out of their bunk. They wanted you laying there so you couldn't cause any friggin' trouble. So this is the kind of stuff that you see, but you, you also see inmates, you know, people that are coming into the jail system that are bound for prison, they don't know how to conduct themselves. So prison, you have to, there are two things that's very important. In prison, good hygiene is important because you are so crowded that you don't want some son of a bitch being dirty and stinking up the place. So good hygiene is important. The other thing that's important is having proper manners, etiquette. It's all about saying, hey, excuse me, uh, please, thank you, stuff like that. If you don't practice good manners or have that etiquette, you're probably going to get your ass beaten at some point. So why is that important? Again, because of the overcrowding that's in prison. Those environments are so crowded that if you don't have respect for each other, if you're not having proper manners, the system starts to break apart. Same thing with hygiene. If you don't have proper hygiene, if you're not clean, things start to break down after a while. So the jail environment kind of trains you or educates you on how you should be conducting yourself once you get to prison. Good manners, hygiene, don't gamble, don't be loud, don't run your fucking mouth, stuff like that, okay? So it educates you on all this. So in that environment can be, as these people are getting educated, they don't know. So as these people are being educated, that environment can be very chaotic, very violent at times. Okay. So I just wanted to share that. The other individual asked, and then we're going to get to the meat of the show. The other individual asked, he asked a question. He was like, his name is Vlad Chibano. Or C-I-O-B-A-N-O over on Twitter. Ciabano? 
Vlad Sibano or Chibano or whatever. He was like, how do you protect yourself from something like that? Talking about the Vaseline. Well, the way that you really protect yourself is you don't run your fucking mouth. That's number one. You have respect for the other inmates that are there. Everyone is doing their time. Now, when I'm talking about respect, what am I talking about? You get some cat that's in there and he's 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 crying about being in jail. And he's, you know, he's crying every single and you see this. He's crying every single day. Oh, I've got 30 days. Oh, I've got 30 days. I don't know what to do. I can't, I'm never gonna get out. Oh my god, I've got 30 days. Meanwhile, somebody that just got sentenced to 20 years is having to listen to that bullshit every single day. So how do you think? That's going to make that guy that's looking at 20. That's a guy that's sentenced to 20. What's he going to think about this son of a bitch that's crying over 30 days? He's going to listen to that for a couple of days until he gets up and he's going to beat the shit out of that guy. So respect. Understanding these things. You get somebody that's got sleep apnea. All right. So you're in a room full of men. These guys, some of these guys are looking at 10, 15, 20 years. You got some son of a bitch that comes in that's snoring too much. Now, he can't help that he's snoring. I will grant you that. But he is disrupting the entire environment. Everybody else, everybody else is trying to get some sleep. All right. And he's sitting there snoring through the night. And I got to be honest with you, some of these sleep apnea guys, they can saw some damn logs. And I have seen people, you know, it'll start screaming at him. Hey, shut the fuck up. So the guy will wake up, go back to sleep, start again. Then they'll throw something at him. Shoe, you know, shower shoes, something like that. Shut up, I said. And the guy wakes up, does it again. Falls back to sleep, starts snoring again. And I've actually seen this. I've seen, you know, the guy's on a top bunk. I've seen somebody come over. He's, the guy's dead asleep, snoring. He just grabs him, throws him off the bunk into the pool. All right. So these are the things you've got to watch out for. You have to respect the other people who are in that environment. You got to understand these guys are are doing time. These guys they, they don't want to be disturbed by snoring or smelling your dirty ass or stuff like that or you running your mouth. There are a lot of people who get locked up in prison who fancy themselves rappers. So you'll have these assholes that through the night and through the day are screaming rap lyrics. That doesn't last very long. It certainly doesn't last very long in a prison system. So this is what the jail system starts to educate you toward. These, this is how you're supposed to conduct yourself in a prison type of environment. So it kind of, you know, educates and trains people on the proper prison etiquette. Okay. How do you protect yourself against it? You have respect. You understand that you are not the only person in that environment. And for that environment to, to function properly, you need to conduct yourself properly. So you do that. You don't gamble because gambling means that you owe someone money. You try not to buy things from someone's prison store because, again, you owe someone money. You don't smoke cigarettes. You don't uh, run your mouth. You you make sure that, you know, if you if I was never part of a gang, but prison is segregated. Understand that. That doesn't mean you don't hang out with with other races, but it's still segregated. You know, when you go to, to Chow, you've got your black tables, you've got your Hispanic tables, you've got your white tables, breaks down like that. Okay. It, you, you tend to stick with your own kind. And you'll, sometimes you'll work out together. Absolutely you will. All right. Sometimes you, and you'll hang out and you'll, you'll talk and, and maybe 
play some cards together, bullshit like that. Maybe even eat together sometimes. Not at not at Chow Hall, but you know, when you come back and you're you're having a group of people around your bunk and you're you're chowing down on some stuff. You may you may mix in with that. That's fine, but you're still segregated. You have you have a white TV room, you have a black TV room, you have a Hispanic TV room, or the NASCAR room, the BET room, and I forgot what the hell they call this. Right? But you have these, these things that are in place, and they're there so that that environment functions properly. So all this matters when it comes to how do you make sure, how do you protect yourself against that. The other way you protect yourself is that people who are in prison, they tend to adopt or, or gain this hyper-awareness of their environment. You become aware of every single thing that's going on. You get the spider sense that starts tingling. Something's going on. Something's happening. Something's about to happen. We're about to riot. Like, for example, when I was in Big Spring, Texas, we knew. It was a feeling on the compound. You knew, by God, that a riot was about to pick, just to, to you know, spat out. It was about to, it was about to pop off. And you would prepare for that. So um, you get you gain this hyper awareness. You start to understand your environment, that situational awareness of your environment. You know what the baseline is, and you know when things start to go off, whether off that baseline, whether you actually know specifically what those things are. So that hyper awareness matters. You don't put yourself into situations where you might get your ass in trouble. You know, you got this thing. Uh, you got to realize you've got like in a prison system, even a jail system, it's it's very overcrowded. People have no privacy whatsoever. So as you're passing by someone's cell, you know, we as human beings, you know, you pass by a storefront, you're always looking. No, that's reckless eyeballing. You pass by somebody's cell, you got to realize that, hey, keep forward. Don't look in somebody's cell. They don't want you interfering or screwing around. That's the only privacy that they've got. So you don't you don't let your eyeballs stray. You don't sit there and stare at people. You don't bull, do bullshit like that. It's it's all about learning how to conduct yourself properly, not doing the stuff that's going to get you in trouble. That's how you protect yourself from this kind of stuff. Now, if you have been targeted, Jesus Christ, if you have been at that point, it really depends. So in a, in a jail system, it's different than in a prison system. In a jail system, you've got these inmates that, by God, they'll just go crazy and do something, okay? In a prison system, it doesn't typically look like that. In a prison system, there's channels that you go through. So, you know, whoever your shot caller is or your group or your car, you'll typically go, hey, I got some trouble, man, and they'll try to work this bullshit out. Um, for for one race to to target or attack another race, typically that's a problem. All right. If somebody is messing up, their own car, their own group will, t will try to handle that. For somebody to step outside, like for a Hispanic to target, you know, target a white guy or something like that, that becomes a problem. And it, and it becomes a problem on where it's going to be done. So a lot of yards used to have weight piles. You know, you'd have free weights and exercise equipment you could work out with. And you have these inmates. And again, the inmate is different than the convict. The inmate typically doesn't know how to conduct themselves. They're the cause of a lot of trouble inside. And so you've got the in, you've got some inmate that's on the weight yard and he gets mad at somebody else and he'll pick up a weight and bam, knock the shit out of him. Well, that's what gets your weights taken away. And that really causes a lot of anger and problems on the compound when you've got somebody that's acting out of turn on that. So 
it's all these processes. It's all understanding how to conduct yourself, not putting yourself in these situations, things like that. And these are things we're going to be talking more and more about on the Prison Politics Show, which launches June 5th. All right, so I'm Brett Johnson. When we come back, episode 60, to catch a thief, you need to think like a thief. No, hell no, that don't go when we come back. All right, so we're now back to the Brett Johnson Show, the meat of today's episode, episode number 60, to catch a thief. You need to think like a thief. I got to tell you, I don't believe it. I don't believe it at all. And I've been guilty of saying that myself. But as time has went on, I've come to understand that that is simply not a possibility. All right. Uh, you know who thinks like criminals? Criminals. You know who thinks like cops? Cops. You know who thinks like fraud or anti-fraud professionals? Anti-fraud professional. CISOs think like CISOs. No, I don't think this this whole idea of you need to think like a criminal in order to catch a criminal, I don't believe that. I think that you can you can try to put yourself in that type of mindset, but when good guys, when fraud professionals try to think like a criminal, you get products like the RFID blocking wallets or ideas that somebody's going to wear a backpack walk down a street and record all the RFID signals that are coming out of, you know, passports or credit cards, things like that. It's a bunch of bullshit. You get things like the Series 7 attacks of someone taking over an entire cell phone tower instead of just doing a SIM swap. That's what you get when, you know, people who aren't criminals try to think like criminals. It doesn't really work like that. And again, I have, I've said that, I've spouted out that line Myself, I have. I've, I've been guilty of saying that same thing. And what prompted today's show, I'd actually been kind of thinking about it prior, but what prompted today's show was a post by Alex Hall over on LinkedIn. And he was given a breakdown, you know, in his experience. The first, the first step in fraud prevention strategy development is think like a fraudster. And once he, once he said that, I was like, nah, I really don't need to read the rest of it. But, um, Brian Davis responded. He's like, can someone who isn't or wasn't a fraudster truly think like a fraudster? And Hall comes in. I think they can. And he gives his opinion. And I come in and I say immediately, no, they cannot. Law enforcement comes close. The more degrees of then more degrees of separation. But no, if you are not a fraudster, you cannot think like one. And I tagged Brian Davis in on that. Then a few people responded, "Oh yes, you can." Adam Weaver, I think, gave an, an excellent response. What he said was, "As he says, I don't think they can. Maybe close enough to be effective, but not truly from a fraudster's perspective." People discount the need for survival, the pressures behind the motivation. It's never just think like a fraudster, how can they make money? It's more often, how much further are they willing to go than I would be? And the answer is almost always much, much, much further. Adam Weaver, dude, I love the shit out of you. You, you nailed a lot of it right there and you, you got to the meat of the problem. And we're going to talk about that more in depth. Then this guy named Mark Nawani a fraud risk expert. Now, here's what I think is really interesting because he actually tells the truth of it while trying to say that you can talk like a fraud or think like a fraudster. He's like, yes, they can. And then he immediately contradicts 
you know, the necessity of doing that. Yes, they can. I don't tick those boxes, however. I've led fraud strategy products that have mitigated losses in excess of $500 million from 2018 till date. The key thing is studying trends and patterns to get a concise know-how on when the most losses occur within a real-time fraud trend scenario. And that formulating a viable strategy around tacking, attacking it head-on. Data scientists and a team just as passionate as you are, the key players in executing said strategy. My thought on that was, is, you know, hey, he, he, he says... He says the first time around, oh, yeah, you can absolutely think like a fraudster. And that's what you should be doing. And then he immediately says, I don't do that, though. Well, no, you don't do that because that shit doesn't work. You end up with RFID blocking wallets and backpacks that are supposedly being walked around the streets of San Francisco in order to record RFID signals. No, no real criminal does that bullshit. And no real criminal would ever think like that. So that's why it doesn't work for you because it doesn't really work for anyone, Mark. Adam, like I said, I, I love what you said. Man. Um, the truth of the matter is that you're right on that the good guys discount a lot of what's going on in the thought processes of fraudsters. You take social engineering, for example, and I've been giving this example now for a little while. A social engineer, you've got two types. You've got the you've got the type that I used to be or Matt Cox used to be, you know, the real criminal social engineers out there. What is that social engineer, the criminal social engineer motivated by? Well, if I don't succeed in this social engineering attack, I don't eat that night. I don't put money in pocket for me to make ends meet, to eat, to pay my bills, things like that. That's number one. The second reason is, hey, if my social engineering attempt fails, I can potentially be identified and go to jail. So the, the motivations are much different than the white hat or the gray hat social engineer, these people who teach social, social engineering. What's their motivation for these attacks? Well, I, that's, how I make a, that's how I make money. What happens if you fail? Nothing. I go on to the next client. And as such, the way that social engineering works between a white hat and a gray hat compared to a black hat, you know, the actual real criminal, differs completely. You have these people that teach social engineering. And you have this thing called the Black Hat Conference, which they have a social engineering section. And what happens? You you see these the most outlandish social engineering attacks that are out there. Can you get this done? Can you do this? How outlandish can you be and still get by with things? That is not that is not how a real social engineer on the criminal side works. It's not about being outlandish. It's about being the, the most low-key you can possibly be to get what you want that potential victim to do. And you don't want that, that potential victim to even know what's going on. You want to manipulate that victim into acting how you want them to act into thinking that they're making the choice to do that and that they never find out that hey they were manipulated they were victimized that's what a social engineering attack is actually about if the victim knows they've been bamboozled or as you used to say as we used to say in prison jingled her i know you're jingling me you know you're scamming me you're cheating me if the victim knows that 
the whole thing falls or fails at the end of the day. You don't want the victim to know that. You want the victim to think that everything is kosher, that everything is working fine. So it tends to be the lowest key thing you can do. You're not trying to stand out like you see these white hat and black hat social engineers bragging about all the time. That's the wrong way. And I think the reason for that, the difference between the two, boils down to understanding those motivations. Notice my key word there, understanding. I don't think that you have to think like a fraudster in order to combat cybercrime or cybersecurity issues or scams and hustles and frauds. I don't think that. I do think you need to understand that fraudster, that criminal. And there's a difference between the two because at the end of the day, unless you are a criminal, you cannot think like a criminal. You can't. Unless you're law enforcement, you can't think like law enforcement. Same thing for a fraud professional. All these fraud professionals out there, unless you're a fraud professional, you're probably not able to think like one. It takes that 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 idea of 10,000 hours is what makes you an expert. I certainly have 10,000 plus hours as a cyber criminal, as a social engineer, as a criminal in general. I've got multiples of 10,000 hours. Someone who doesn't have that will never have that skill, that expertise, that mindset and thought process. You're not going to get it. Unless you're, you're spending that many hours doing those things, you're never going to get it. Same thing with law enforcement. These law enforcement officials, agents, whether it be local, state, federal, they have thousands of hours of being law enforcement people. They know it. You're not going to think like a law enforcement individual because you don't have that skill level, that expertise. It applies to crime. It applies to law enforcement. And it applies also to fraud prevention. You're not going to have that. Your frame of reference is no longer, is not as big. You're just not able to do that. But you can certainly try to understand what's going on on the criminal side. And that's one of the things I, I typically try to do all the time. Is, is train people of understanding what's going on. For example, the other day, let me pull this up. The other day over on Telegram, I, um, let me share a screen so we can walk through this, okay? Over on Telegram, I shared this right here. And this is uh, from April 16th. And this individual is selling the Paradise one-time password bot. So he's selling it. He's even got the nice little ad here. He says, hey, Paradise is one of the biggest, if not the largest, one-time password service provider available, offering the most advanced bot with the most advanced features, creating an experience unlike any other. Currently, the bot is on version 6.2, utilizing a brand new custom voice solution to prevent any downtime or issues. Voice over IP costs are able to be covered using cards. So with cards, what he means is stolen credit cards, if you have any access to them, creating an almost 100% cost-free business. So you, you, you pay for the backbone of the business using stolen credit cards is what he's telling you. And that means that every bit of money that comes in from this service is profit for the person who owns it. And he's selling it. He says, hey, sell past average, re uh, average revenue monthly. $32,000. That's an that's from Cash App and it's from Crypto at Large. Bot payments average revenue is 3600 to 4500 crypto only. 
total monthly profit, total monthly po profit, he is pocketing on the month 29000 to 33000 Included in the cell, you've got the source code, you've got the voice over IP server, you've got TTS server, you've got 3,000 plus active OTP users. In the database, you've got 6,200 active users on a mail list. You've got, you own the website, the domain transfer, he's going to do that for you. You've got 3,000 plus five-star reviews. You've got the Telegram channel, he's going to give that to you. The support system, he's going to give that to you. He's going to give you custom SMTP, graphics back. He's going to give all this kind of stuff. And he's selling it all for out the gate, buy it now price, $22,000. If you're interested, message Akamai, all right? Or Akami or however you want to say his damn name. So I shared that the other day on LinkedIn and on my Twitter feed to talk about why that is, why he's selling it, okay? And it boils down to, to, to three different reasons, okay? So, and this is all go goes into not thinking like a fraudster, but understanding how fraudsters operate, understanding the mindset, understanding the motivations, understanding what they're looking for. So if you think about it, and I've talked about this frequently before, there are three motivations on why a cyber criminal is committing crime. Status, cash, ideology. Status, you're trying to impress your criminal peers. You're doing something that they can't do. If you can impress them, you gain the respect of that community. That respect equates to profit. Cash, most attacks are looking for cash. Most crimes out there are looking to put cash in pocket. Easy enough. What that actually equates to is, hey, the, the easiest access that gives the largest return on that criminal access, that's what you aim for. Lowest hanging fruit. And then ideology. Are you pissed off at somebody? Politically, economically, socially, are you pissed off at someone? You can be attacked for that. So those are the three motivations. What are you looking for? You're looking for information, access, data, cash. What can I find out about your company? Access, can I get you, give me remote access, data, what kind of, what information can I steal and resell or lock down about your company or cash, can I get you, can I extort you for a direct cash payment or launder money through your, using your system, something like that. Okay, that's what you're looking for. That's why you're committing. I shared this story about the guy selling his service and the Paradise Bot, I mean, that that is, he's not telling a lie. He's being honest. It is an it's an absolutely outstanding service. It is well known. It I have no doubt it profits that monthly. So why is he selling it for twenty two thousand dollars out the gate when it's profiting on the month thirty thousand? That seems like that's a hell of a nice deal for some aspiring criminal to sign on to, and it is. So I walked through why someone would stop selling. And what's interesting is, is that I actually had this conversation with some law enforcement officials about um, another service not associated with bots that had been sold prior. And they asked, hey, why is this guy selling this? Well, back when I read Shadow Crew, we had this, I came up with this idea, and it still holds true today, that a seller will continue or a vendor will continue to provide a product or service as long as it remains viable for them to do so. Once it's no longer viable for them to do so, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> once it's no longer viable for them to do so, they will no longer provide that product or service. So what makes it no longer viable? So in this case here, 
this gentleman, something has happened that has caused him to want to sell this. And that boils down to typically three things. The first is law enforcement. He's been popped. Some associates of his has been popped, or he's starting to get jittery. He's starting to say, you know, the end is nigh. Time to move on before I get my ass in prison for, you know, he's profiting this much. He's probably going to get eight, 10 years or more than that. So time to move my ass on. So he's selling it to somebody. Okay. So fear of law enforcement or law enforcement or someone's been arrested, what have you. Okay. That's number one. Number two is security. And we, we know, okay. So we know law enforcement's here. We know that. We know law enforcement's looking at this some bitch. So that's a very valid thing. Okay. The other thing that could be happening, and it is happening in the industry at large, is these one-time passwords, password bots, are very effective. They've been very effective. As such, financial institutions, fintechs, all these verticals that rely on one-time passwords, they are ramping up their security to defeat these bots. So while it is making $30,000 a month clearing that, it's not going to do that much longer. It's going to drop significantly as these verticals, these companies implement proper security to defeat OTPs, OTP bots. Okay. So that's the second reason. And then the third reason is, well, this guy could be moving on to greener pastures. One of the big cybercrime services right now is stealing the cookies. So I don't have to worry about getting your password and login. If I can just steal the cookie, the session token for your, from your login, it bypasses multi-factor authentication. I don't have to have the password and login. I come in, I look like you. The financial institution typically doesn't even know what the hell is going on, and I can steal all the money out of the account and do whatever I want to with the account. So he may be moving on to greener pastures, a different service like that. Okay, This feeds into this idea of... It feeds into this idea of thinking like a criminal. No, that's not thinking like a criminal. That's understanding how criminal environments operate. It's understanding what happens, why it's happening like that. You don't, if you're really trying to go out there and think like a criminal, you are going to fail miserably because you don't have the criminal hours under your belt. You don't have that expertise. You don't have that criminal mindset. You got to understand it's a mindset. Um, what, what's his name? If I've still got him pulled up here, because I want to give him credit because he was, he was, Spot on, Adam Weaver. Let me pull up his profile here. Yeah, Adam is over at, he's from Greenville, Greenville, South Carolina. All right, Adam. He's with the uh, Fox Hill Fraud, Fraud Ops out of Anderson, South Carolina. And he's he actually hit it, uh, I think, pretty, pretty dead on the head there of um, saying no. And let's, let's go through again what he says is he says, I don't think they can. They might get close enough to be effective, but not truly from a fraudster's perspective. So you, so while you're trying to think like a fraudster, you're not able to do that because you ain't one. People disc, he says people discount that need for survival, the pressures behind the motivation. That's exactly what I said, it, like social engineering. If I fail, I don't eat that night and potentially I go to prison. For a while, I lose all the contacts, all the friends, all the family members there. So my motivation 
for these attacks, whether it be social engineering, stealing credit card numbers, uh, coming in, doing credit card fraud, account takeovers, what have you, my motivation is much, much different, much deeper, much more valuable and meaningful than the motivation of somebody on the other side of the fence. It's much different. That goes into this whole thing of criminal lifestyle that I really don't think that people understand if you're not living that criminal lifestyle. Fraud is not an eight-hour-a-day job. It is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, except for leap year, then you add another day on to that. It is a lifestyle. You are always looking on how to profit. You are always talking to people, learning, experimenting, committing that fraud, committing that crime. If you're not doing that, you're not thinking like a criminal. All right, so get that out of your head of thinking like a criminal. Instead, focus on understanding a criminal. I, I'm, I've been very fortunate, very fortunate that I've got to know a lot of certified uh, ACFE people, certified fraud uh, Oh, I forgot what the damn E stands for. Certified fraud expert. <laughs> but I, I know John Gill over out of Austin. I know uh, Jason Zirko. I know a lot of ACFE people across the United States. I've got to speak at many of their chapters as well. They do an outstanding job. Now, do they sit there and say they're, they're trying to, act, to think like fraudsters? No. I think that their entire goal is understanding that criminal mindset. There's a guy named uh, Creasy that does a fraud triangle, and he talks about what it takes for insider fraud to happen. And he breaks it down into three things. He says, hey, there has to be pressure. That employee has to be feeling some sort of pressure. Well, what kind of pressure? Well, fear of losing the job or anger at the employee or fellow employers or employees, something like that. But there has to be some sort of pressure. But that employee also has to have the opportunity to commit the crime, and then finally that employee has to be able to justify their actions, to sit there at the, at the end of the day and say, hey, I'm justified in what I'm doing. It's it's because uh, my, my employer treated me bad. It's because I'm about to lose my job and I have to be able to put food on the table. So you have to be able to tell yourself you're a good person. All right, That's not putting yourself or thinking like a fraudster. It's trying to understand what's going on and break it down into areas where you can address those, identify those, and then figure out who committed the crime, how to stop the crime from being committed, and then prosecute that crime once you catch the son of a bitch that did it. All right? That's what happens. That's what you should be doing is trying to understand the fraud that's taking place. You know, I, I've talked a lot about collaboration. And I'll be damned if over the past few years we've not got because I, you know I've, I've been bitching about collaboration since I came onto the scene, and uh, over the past couple of years we we start to see some of these fraud people now on the good guy side. Oh, we collaborate. Oh yeah, we 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 are even better than the bad guys. No, you're not. You're not at all. All right, you take a, a group on Telegram, a group over on Dread, what have you. They are open source across the board. They know that by sharing and exchanging information, they all profit more at the end of the day. It is literally us versus them. All right. Us being the bad guys, them being the targets, the good guys. All right. It's literally that. Okay. So 
I don't see the good guys doing that at all. And I see the good guys that are still constrained by regulations, privacy concerns, and then more importantly, competitive edges or fear of losing profit. That's what I see. That's, you know, I bitch about chargebacks, 9-11, Blue Acorn, uh, all these other companies, Synchrony Bank, things like that. I bitch about all that. And, you know, if, if everyone is open source, if everyone is about doing the right thing, you'd think you'd hear some chatter about them, but you don't because the people out there in the industry, they don't want to make any waves. They don't want to upset anything. It's not a collaboration at all. What that is, is everybody for themselves. Broadsters ain't like that. They ain't like that. I was very fortunate. I, I was damn fortunate. Um, today's show was supposed to be about Blue Acorn, Wampley, um, Blue Vine, uh, Money Lion, places like that, who helped facilitate pandemic fraud. It was going to be, today's episode was going to be part two of When the Good Guys Suck. That's going to be the next show. In the lead up for that, I, I, I'd actually planned on not doing that show because I'd been asked not to because I've got some of these confidential documents and I was going to share them all. And the gentleman who, who helped me get those documents, he's like, hey, hold off on that because we're, we're trying to put these son of bitches in, in jail. The reason I'm bringing this up is on, on Twitter, a Telegram guy reached out to me. A very good Telegram, well, good if you're a bad guy. A very good Telegram guy reached out to him, and he's like, hey, I, I really would appreciate if you could do that show. So we talked on the phone for over an hour, over an hour. Um, this idea of thinking like a criminal. I will tell you this. His openness, he wanted me to call him Wally. He didn't want me to use his real name, and I'll call him Wally. Why Wally? Well, because back in the mid to late 2000s, he ate Walmart alive. But uh, I, I talked to the gentleman for over an hour. And uh, his openness, his honesty, his sharing and exchanging of information, that collaboration, we just mesh together. And I guess it's me coming from my former criminal background. He respects the way that I operate, the way that I don't judge people uh, or demonize people, the way that I'm equal of calling everyone out, not just the people that are on Telegram or over on Dread on the real dark web, but these companies that are screwing up and screwing over people as well. So we had an outstanding conversation, and it struck me. I mean, it, it hit hard. It did. It struck me how honest he was, a criminal, a confessed criminal. He's actually served prison time. But it struck me how honest he was compared to how um, dishonest a lot of people on the good guy side of the fence can truly be. And I, I walked away from that phone call. I, I can't say I was disappointed. I walked away from that phone call feeling better about things, feeling that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lone player sometimes over on this side of the fence, you know, calling these companies out. But I am, uh, I'm absolutely doing the right thing. And uh, I'm getting respect for where, from, from, where it counts, you know, even on the bad guy side. I told this guy, I was like, look, man, I said, uh, I, I'm not going to tell you not to break the law because that's going to go in one ear and out the other. And I said, but I would hope that you would uh, be moving toward getting out of this business and understanding some of the damage that you're causing. And I told him, too, I was like, if you get your ass in trouble, give me a call and I'll help you any way I possibly can. 
And I mean that. Um, I don't, you know, we're on different sides of the fence. But I understand, and this is the point of this, okay? Yeah, I have the criminal mindset. I absolutely think like a fraudster or a criminal in many different facets. But more importantly, I understand that environment and the people who populate that environment. And that gives me an insight into what's going on and how it's going on, what attackers look for and what they're, uh, how they're attacking and everything else. If you're trying to think like a, a fraudster, if you're really trying to think like one, and you don't have the tools to do that, you end up with things like RFID wallets. You end up with a bunch of bullshit. You end up anticipating these highly sophisticated attacks when that is not the case, when actually the criminal is just picking up the phone, spoofing a call, calling into customer service and social engineering the real names of a fraud team. So he can then go out and attack them personally, which has happened. I worked on a case where that happened. That's the difference between trying to think like a criminal when you can't and simply trying to understand a criminal, the environment, the motivations, what they're looking for and how they tend to attack. Um, you, you, you have to understand these things. You have to understand that most criminals are not sophisticated. You have to understand these days that cybercrime, the sophistication is no longer in the criminal. When I was a criminal, we had to know every single facet or dynamic of the crimes, the security, the drop addresses, how to launder money. You had to know everything across the board. These days, you don't have to know anything. The sophistication these days is in the platform itself of cybercrime as a service. The attacker doesn't need to know anything. It's basically plug and play for criminals for a lot of them. Um, I was very fortunate this guy I spoke with, Wally. He's got skills. Now, he's not a coder. He's not, but you don't have to be a coder to be successful at defeating cybersecurity or committing fraud or cybercrime online. Just as you don't have to be a coder to be a CISO. You don't have to do that, okay? I think the point is, is that, um, and I'm going to close out the show. This is a shorter show than usual. Actually, it's not. I guess it's going to run an hour. The point is, don't try to be something that you're not, okay? Understand your limitations. You know, we, we, we get in these, uh, this kind of verbal masturbation, where we're like, oh, yeah, if you can just think like them, you're, you're going to be just fine. Put yourself in their shoes. Here's the truth. I don't care whose shoes you're trying to put yourself into. If you've not walked in their shoes the miles that they've walked, you will never, ever be able to put yourself in their shoes. You, you can't think like them because you don't have that experience. But you can try to understand them. That's the difference between empathy and sympathy. All right, that experience. So I am, I'm saying don't concentrate on trying to think like a fraudster. Instead, concentrate on trying to understand the fraudster. That's, that's why somebody like me or Matt Cox or Cal Leeming or a variety of other real criminals that are out there, that's why we have such value. We, we, we are very good about putting things into terms that people can understand. We're not trying to get you to think like us because you can't. But we are trying to get you to understand, because if you can understand how these things happen, the difference between a, a real black, black hat social engineer and a white hat social engineer, then you start to understand, hey, this, this is how we can actually, you know, identify it, identify the individual, 
and then prosecute that individual and mitigate the crimes that are happening. Okay, that way you're you're understanding your place in that cyber cybercrime spectrum, and you start to understand the way that crime actually operates. I cannot tell you. I've been doing this. Uh, I've been doing speaking and consulting since uh, I think 2016, 2017, and I cannot tell you, even today. I gave, I've given two talks on uh, synthetic fraud, two talks in one webinar. Um, I cannot tell you the amount of people, even today, as synthetic fraud, synthetic identity fraud, is um, 80% of all new account fraud. It's the fastest growing form of identity theft. You would think that financial professionals, security professionals, would know what it is and how it happens. But I've given two recent talks about that, in-person talks, and a majority of the audience, they still have either never heard of synthetic fraud or they don't know how it takes place, how it happens, how you can identify it, things like that. Okay, So understanding how those criminal actions take place, who the attackers are, what motivates them, really understanding that is what's valuable and effective. Trying to put yourself into their, in, in, to think like that is not. Now, you may say I'm arguing semantics. Really not okay. Uh, that's why I wanted to plug the ACFE there. They are outstanding when it comes not to thinking like criminals, but to understanding criminals. That's why they interview criminals all the time. That's why they have them up there to speak. That's why that at their national conferences, their closing keynote is from a criminal. That 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 they might start to understand how criminals operate and and, and think at that point. All right. My name is Brett Johnson. I hope that this show has been uh, valuable, entertaining, enlightening. Maybe it has, maybe it has not. But look, if you like, if you like the show, please, uh, you know, hit the like button. I'll even tell you if you don't like the show, hit the dislike button. That way, I know what the hell's going on. May, uh, on on YouTube, you can make comments. Let me know uh, your thoughts and op uh, opinions on things. I do listen. I do respond to those things. Take the time, if you don't mind. It, if you if you find any value in what I'm doing, please subscribe. Okay. As we close out this show, what do we talk about? What do we say? We say stay safe out there. It seems like this world continues to get worse every single day. It's important that you stay safe. You know, I talked about prison, about how you stay safe, about having that situational awareness. So stay safe. Stay secure. Always practice security across the board. Don't put yourself in insecure situations or do things that lack security across the board. So stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. That situational awareness, whether in the physical world or online. In the physical world, we tend to have that situational awareness. We know when we have made a turn into a bad neighborhood. And it's like, oh, shit, roll up the windows, lock the doors, try not to stop anywhere. Let's get the hell out of here. That's, that same type of situational awareness needs to be practiced online, understanding that, hey, there are predators in these environments. Okay, so stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. More importantly, what I say at the end of every single show, just do the right damn thing. I say that because I believe that. Because it doesn't matter whether someone's looking or not. Whether someone will ever know you did the right thing or not. 
It matters to you. It matters to me, regardless of who's looking, regardless of the consequence. Always do the right thing. Always tell the truth. And that means not just speaking it, but when you're not, when you're holding something back, that equates to a lie as well. All right. Just do the right damn thing. If we, if we all did that, if we all would just take the time to consider the consequences of actions. And this is, this is coming from a guy who's used to commit crime, used to victimize people. But if we all sat back and actually thought about this, what a different world it would be. So just do the right damn thing. My name is Brett Johnson. This is the Brett Johnson Show. I want to thank you guys and gals for taking the time to tune in and listen. I truly appreciate it. Make, make no mistake about that. I truly appreciate you doing this. That's why I try to respond to every single person that makes a comment, and I try to do that, okay? Thank you again for listening. Until next time, take care.